This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 8. The Credibility of Scripture Sufficiently Proved Insofar as Natural Reason Admits This chapter consists of four parts. The first contains certain general proofs which may be easily gathered out of the writings both of the Old and New Testament. In the face of the arrangement of this sacred volume, its dignity, truth, simplicity, efficacy, and majesty, sections 1 and 2, The second part contains special proofs taken from the Old Testament. In the face of the antiquity of the books of Moses, their authority, his miracles, and prophecies, sections 3 through 7. Also, the predictions of the other prophets and their wondrous harmony, section 8. There is subjoined a refutation of two objections to the books of Moses and the prophets, sections 9 and 10, The third part exhibits proofs gathered out of the New Testament, for example, the harmony of the evangelists in their account of heavenly mysteries, the majesty of the writings of John, Peter, and Paul, the remarkable calling of the apostles and conversion of Paul, section 11. The last part exhibits the proofs drawn from ecclesiastical history, the perpetual consent of the church in receiving and preserving divine truth, the invincible force of the truth in defending itself, the agreement of the godly, though otherwise differing so much from one another, the pious profession of the same doctrine by many illustrious men, in fine, the more than human constancy of the martyrs, sections 12 and 13. This is followed by a conclusion of the particular topic discussed. Sections 1. Secondary helps to establish the credibility of Scripture. 1. The arrangement of the sacred volume. 2. Its dignity. 3. Its truth. 4. Its simplicity. and 5. Its efficacy. 2. The majesty conspicuous in the writings of the prophets. 3. Special proofs from the Old Testament. 1. The antiquity of the books of Moses. 4. This antiquity contrasted with the dreams of the Egyptians. 2. The majesty of the books of Moses. 5. The miracles and prophecies of Moses, a profane objection refuted. 6. Another profane objection refuted. 7. The prophecies of Moses as to the scepter not departing from Judah and the calling of the Gentiles. 8. The predictions of other prophets, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the return from the Babylonish captivity, harmony of the prophets, the celebrated prophecy of Daniel. 9. Objection against Moses and the prophets, answer to it. 10. Another objection and answer of the wondrous providence of God in the preservation of the sacred books, the Greek translation, the carefulness of the Jews. 11. Special proofs from the New Testament. 1. The harmony of the evangelists, 
and the sublime simplicity of their writings. Two, the majesty of John, Paul, and Peter. Three, the calling of the apostles. And four, the conversion of Paul. Twelve, proofs from church history. One, perpetual consent of the church in receiving and preserving the truth. Two, the invincible power of the truth itself. And three, agreement among the godly, notwithstanding of their many differences in other respects. Thirteen, the constancy of the martyrs. Conclusion, proofs of this description only of use after the certainty of Scripture has been established in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Section 1. In vain were the authority of Scripture fortified by argument, or supported by the consent of the Church, or confirmed by any other helps, if unaccompanied by an assurance higher and stronger than human judgment can give. Till this better foundation has been laid, the authority of Scripture remains in suspense. On the other hand, when recognizing its exemption from the common rule, we receive it reverently, and according to its dignity, those proofs which were not so strong as to produce and rivet a full conviction in our minds become most appropriate helps. For it is wonderful how much we are confirmed in our belief when we more attentively consider how admirably the system of divine wisdom contained in it is arranged, how perfectly free the doctrine is from everything that savors of earth. How beautifully it harmonizes in all its parts, and how rich it is in all the other qualities which give an air of majesty to composition. Our hearts are still more firmly assured when we reflect that our admiration is elicited more by the dignity of the matter than by the graces of style. For it was not without an admirable arrangement of providence that the sublime mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have for the greater part been delivered with a contemptible meanness of words. Had they been adorned with a more splendid eloquence, the wicked might have caviled and alleged that this constituted all their force. But now, when an unpolished simplicity, almost bordering on rudeness, makes a deeper impression than the loftiest flights of oratory, what does it indicate? if not that the holy scriptures are too mighty in the power of truth to need the rhetorician's art. Hence there was good ground for the apostles' declaration that the faith of the Corinthians was founded not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2.5. This speech and preaching among them, having been not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, 1 Corinthians 2.5 again. For the truth is vindicated in opposition to every doubt, when, unsupported by foreign aid, it has its sole sufficiency in itself. How peculiarly this property belongs to Scripture appears from this, that no human writings, however skillfully composed, are at all capable of affecting us in a similar way. Read Demosthenes or Cicero, Read Plato, Aristotle, or any other of that class. You will, I admit, feel wonderfully allured, pleased, moved, 
enchanted, but turn from them to the reading of this sacred volume, and whether you will or not, it will so affect you, so pierce your heart, so work its way into your very marrow, that in comparison of the impression so produced, that of orators and philosophers will almost disappear, making it manifest that in the sacred volume there is a truth divine, as something which makes it immeasurably superior to all the gifts and graces attainable by man. Section 2 I confess, however, that in elegance and beauty, nay, splendor, the style of some of the prophets is not surpassed by the eloquence of heathen writers. By examples of this description, the Holy Spirit was pleased to show that it was not from want of eloquence. He, in other instances, used a rude and homely style. But whether you read David, Isaiah, and others of the same class, whose discourse flows sweet and pleasant, or Amos the herdsman, Jeremiah and Zechariah, whose rougher idiom savors of rusticity, that majesty of the spirit to which I adverted appears conspicuous in all. I am not aware that as Satan often apes God, that he may by a fallacious resemblance the better insinuate himself into the minds of the simple. So he craftily disseminated the impious errors with which he deceived miserable men in an uncouth and semi-barbarous style, and frequently employed obsolete forms of expression in order to cloak his impostures. None possessed of any moderate share of sense need be told how vain and vile such affectation is. But in regard to the Holy Scriptures, however petulant man may attempt to carpet them, they are replete with sentiments which it is clear that man never could have conceived. Let each of the prophets be examined, and not one will be found who does not rise far higher than human reach. Those who feel their works insipid must be absolutely devoid of taste. Section 3 as this subject has been treated at large by others, it will be sufficient here merely to touch on its leading points. In addition to the qualities already mentioned, great weight is due to the antiquity of Scripture. Whatever fables Greek writers may retail concerning the Egyptian theology, no monument of any religion exists which is not long posterior to the age of Moses. But Moses does not introduce a new deity. He only sets forth that doctrine concerning the eternal God which the Israelites had received by tradition from their fathers, by whom it had been transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand during a long series of ages. For what else does he do than lead them back to the covenant which had been made with Abraham? Had he referred to matters of which they had never heard, he never could have succeeded, but their deliverance from the bondage in which they were held must have been a fact of familiar and universal notoriety, the very mention of which must have immediately aroused the attention of all. It is, moreover, probable that they were intimately acquainted with the whole period of four hundred years. Now, if Moses, who is so much earlier than all other writers, traces the tradition of his doctrine from so remote a period, it is obvious how far the Holy Scriptures must in point of antiquity surpass all other writings.
Section 4 Some, perhaps, may choose to credit the Egyptians in carrying back their antiquity to a period of 6,000 years before the world was created. But their garrulity, which even some profane authors have held up to derision, it cannot be necessary for me to refute. Josephus, however, in his work against Appian, produces important passages from very ancient writers, implying that the doctrine delivered in the law was celebrated among all nations from the remotest ages, though it was neither read nor accurately known. And then, in order that the malignant might have no ground for suspicion, and the ungodly no handle for cavil, God has provided, in the most effectual manner, against both dangers. When Moses relates the words which Jacob, under divine inspiration, uttered concerning his posterity almost three hundred years before, how does he ennoble his own tribe? He stigmatizes it with eternal infamy in the person of Levi. Simon and Levi, says he, are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly mine honor be not thou united. Genesis 49, 5 and 6. This stigma he certainly might have passed in silence, not only that he might spare his own ancestor, but also save both himself and his whole family from a portion of the disgrace. How can any suspicion attach to him, who by voluntarily proclaiming that the first founder of his family was declared detestable by a divine oracle, neither consults for his own private interest, nor declines to incur obloquy among his tribe, who must have been offended by his statement of the fact. Again, when he relates the wicked murmuring of his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, Numbers 12.1, shall we say that he spoke his own natural feelings, or that he obeyed the command of the Holy Spirit? Moreover, when invested with the supreme authority, why does he not bestow the office of high priest on his sons? instead of consigning them to the lowest place. I only touch on a few points out of many, but the law itself contains throughout numerous proofs which fully vindicate the credibility of Moses and place it beyond dispute that he was in truth a messenger sent forth from God. Section 5 The many striking miracles which Moses relates are so many sanctions of the law delivered and the doctrine propounded by him, his being carried up into the mount in a cloud, his remaining there forty days separated from human society, his countenance glistening during the promulgation of the law, as with meridian effulgence, the lightnings which flashed on every side, the voices and thunderings which echoed in the air, the clang of the trumpet blown by no human mouth, his entrance into the tabernacle, while a cloud hid him from the view of the people, the miraculous vindication of his authority by the fearful destruction of Korah, Nathan, and Abiram, and all their impious faction, the stream instantly gushing forth from the rock when struck with his rod, the manna which rained from heaven at his prayer, did not God by all these proclaim aloud that he was an undoubted prophet? If any one object that I am taking debatable points for granted, 
the cavil is easily answered. Moses published all these things in the assembly of the people. How then could he possibly impose on the very eyewitnesses of what was done? Is it conceivable that he would have come forward and while accusing the people of unbelief, obstinacy, ingratitude, and other crimes, have boasted that his doctrine had been confirmed in their own presence by miracles which they never saw? Section 6 For it is also worthy of remark that the miracles which he relates are combined with disagreeable circumstances, which must have provoked opposition from the whole body of the people, if there had been the smallest ground for it. Hence it is obvious that they were induced to assent merely because they had been previously convinced by their own experience, but because the fact was too ascribed them to magic, Exodus 9.11, but with what probability is a charge of magic brought against him, who held it in such abhorrence, that he ordered every one who should consult soothsayers and magicians to be stoned, Leviticus 20.27. Assuredly, no impostor deals in tricks without studying to raise his reputation by amazing the common people. But what does Moses do? By crying out that he and Aaron, his brother, are nothing, Exodus 16.7, that they merely execute what God has commanded, he clears himself from every approach to suspicion. Again, if the facts are considered in themselves, what kind of incantation could cause manna to rain from heaven every day? an insufficient quantity to maintain a people, while any one who gathered more than the appointed measure saw his incredulity divinely punished by its turning to worms. To this we may add that God then suffered his servant to be subjected to so many serious trials that the ungodly cannot now gain anything by their glamour. When, as often happened, the people proudly and petulantly rose up against him, when individuals conspired and attempted to overthrow him, how could any impostors have enabled Clear to leave it free for heathen writers to deny that Moses did perform miracles? The father of lies suggested a calumny, and him to elude their rage. The event plainly shows that by these means his doctrine was attested to all succeeding ages. Section 7 Moreover, it is impossible to deny that he was guided by a prophetic spirit in assigning the first place to the tribe of Judah in the person of Jacob, especially if we take into view the fact itself as explained by the event. Suppose that Moses was the inventor of the prophecy. Still, after he committed it to writing, four hundred years pass away, during which no mention is made of a scepter in the tribe of Judah. After Saul is anointed, the kingly office seems fixed in the tribe of Benjamin, 1 Samuel 11.15 and 16.13. When David is anointed by Samuel, what apparent ground is there for the transference? Who could have looked for a king out of the plebeian family of a herdsman? And out of seven brothers, who could have thought that the honor was destined for the youngest? And then by what means did he afterwards come within reach of the throne? Who dare say that his anointing was regulated by human art or skill or prudence and was not rather the fulfillment of a divine prophecy? 
In like manner, do not the predictions, though obscure, of the admission of the Gentiles into the divine covenant, seeing they were not fulfilled till almost two thousand years after, make it palpable that Moses spoke under divine inspiration? I omit other predictions which so plainly betoken divine revelation, that all men of sound mind must see they were spoken by God. In short, his song itself, Deuteronomy 32, is a bright mirror in which God is manifestly seen. Section 8 In the case of the other prophets, the evidence is even clearer. I will only select a few examples, for it were too tedious to enumerate the whole. Isaiah, in his own day, when the kingdom of Judah was at peace, and had even some ground to confide in the protection of the Chaldeans, spoke of the destruction of the city and the captivity of the people. Isaiah 55.1 Supposing it not to be sufficient evidence of divine inspiration to foretell, many years before, events which at the time seemed fabulous, but which ultimately turned out to be true, whence shall it be said that the prophecies which he uttered concerning their return proceeded, if it was not from God. He names Cyrus, by whom the Chaldeans were to be subdued and the people restored to freedom. After the prophet thus spoke, more than a hundred years elapsed before Cyrus was born, that being nearly the period which elapsed between the death of the one and the birth of the other. It was impossible at that time to guess that some Cyrus would arise to make war on the Babylonians, and after subduing their powerful monarchy, put an end to the captivity of the children of Israel. Does not this simple, unadorned narrative plainly demonstrate that what Isaiah spoke was not the conjecture of man, but the undoubted oracle of God? Again, when Jeremiah, a considerable time before the people were led away, assigned seventy years as the period of captivity, and fixed their liberation and return, must not his tongue have been guided by the Spirit of God? What effrontery were it to deny that, by these evidences, the authority of the prophets is established, the very thing being fulfilled to which they appeal in support of their credibility? Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 42.9 I say nothing of the agreement between Jeremiah and Ezekiel who, living so far apart and yet prophesying at the same time, harmonize as completely in all they say as if they had mutually dictated the words to one another. What shall I say of Daniel? Did not he deliver prophecies embracing a future period of almost 600 years as if he had been writing of past events generally known? Daniel 9 If the pious will duly meditate on these things, they will be sufficiently instructed to silence the cavils of the ungodly. The demonstration is too clear to be gainsaid. Section 9 I am aware of what is muttered in corners by certain miscreants when they would display their acuteness in assailing divine truth. They ask, how do we know that Moses and the prophets wrote the books which now bear their names? Nay, they even dare to question whether there ever was a Moses. Were any one to question whether there ever was a Plato, 
or an Aristotle, or a Cicero? Would not the rod or the whip be deemed the fit chastisement of such folly? The law of Moses has been wonderfully preserved, more by divine providence than by human care. And though, owing to the negligence of the priests, it lay for a short time buried, from the time when it was found by good King Josiah, 2 Kings 22.8 and 2 Chronicles 34.15, it has been continued in the hands of men and been transmitted in unbroken succession from generation to generation. Nor, indeed, when Josiah brought it forth, was it as a book unknown or new, but one which had always been matter of notoriety, and was then in full remembrance. The original writing had been deposited in the temple, and a copy taken from it had been deposited in the royal archives. Deuteronomy 17:18 and 19. The only thing which had occurred was that the priests had ceased to publish the law itself in due form, and the people also had neglected the wanted reading of it. I may add that scarcely an age passed during which its authority was not confirmed and renewed. Were the books of Moses unknown to those who had the Psalms of David in their hands? To sum up the whole in one word, it is certain beyond dispute that these writings passed down, if I may so express it, from hand to hand, being transmitted in an unbroken series from the fathers, who either with their own ears heard them spoke, or learned them from those who had, while the remembrance of them was fresh. Section 10. An objection taken from the history of the Maccabees, 1 Maccabees one fifty-seven and 58, to impugn the credibility of Scripture, is, on the contrary, fitted the best possible to confirm it. First, however, let us clear away the gloss which is put upon it. Having done so, we shall turn the engine which they erect against us upon themselves. As Antiochus ordered all the books of Scripture to be burnt, it is asked, Where did the copies we now have come from? I, in my turn, ask, In what workshop could they have been so quickly fabricated? It is certain that they were in existence the moment the persecution ceased, and that they were acknowledged without dispute by all the pious who had been educated in their doctrine, and were familiarly acquainted with them. Nay, while all the wicked so wantonly insulted the Jews as if they had leagued together for the purpose, not one ever dared to charge them with having introduced spurious books, whatever in their opinion the Jewish religion might be. They acknowledged that Moses was the founder of it. What then do those babblers but betray their snarling petulance in falsely alleging the spuriousness of books whose sacred antiquity is proved by the consent of all history? But not to spend labor in vain in refuting these vile calumnies. Let us rather attend to the care which the Lord took to preserve his word when against all hope he rescued it from the truculence of a most cruel tyrant as from the midst of the flames, inspiring pious priests and others with such constancy that they hesitated not, though it should have been purchased at the expense of their lives, to transmit this treasury to posterity, and defeating the keenest search of the prefects and their satellites. Who does not recognize it as a signal and miraculous work of God, that those sacred monuments which the ungodly persuaded themselves had utterly perished 
immediately returned to resume their former rights, and indeed in greater honor, for the Greek translation appeared to disseminate them over the world. Nor does it seem so wonderful that God rescued the tables of his covenant from the sanguinary edicts of Antiochus, as that they remained safe and entire amid the manifold disasters by which the Jewish nation was occasionally crushed, devastated, and almost exterminated. The Hebrew language was in no estimation, and almost unknown, and assuredly had not God provided for religion, it must have utterly perished. For it is obvious from the prophetical writings of that age how much the Jews, after their return from the captivity, had lost the genuine use of their native tongue. It is of importance to attend to this, because the comparison more clearly establishes the antiquity of the law and the prophets. And whom did God employ to preserve the doctrine of salvation contained in the law and the prophets, that Christ might manifest it in its own time? The Jews, the bitterest enemies of Christ, and hence Augustine, justly calls them the librarians of the Christian church, because they supplied us with books of which they themselves had not the use. Section 11 When we proceed to the New Testament, how solid are the pillars by which its truth is supported? Three evangelists give a narrative in a mean and humble style. The proud often eye this simplicity with disdain, because they attend not to the principal heads of doctrine. For from these they might easily infer that these evangelists treat of heavenly mysteries beyond the capacity of man. Those who have the least particle of candor must be ashamed of their fastidiousness when they read the first chapter of Luke. Even our Savior's discourses, of which a summary is given by these three evangelists, ought to prevent every one from treating their lips with contempt. John, again fulminating in majesty, strikes down more powerfully than any thunderbolt the petulance of those who refuse to submit to the obedience of faith. Let all those acute censors, whose highest pleasure it is to banish a reverential regard of Scripture from their own and other men's hearts, come forward. Let them read the Gospel of John, and willing or unwilling, they will find a thousand sentences which will at least arouse them from their sloth, nay, which will burn into their consciences as with a hot iron, and check their derision. The same thing may be said of Peter and Paul, whose writings, though the greater part read them blindfold, exhibit a heavenly majesty, which in a manner binds and rivets every reader. But one circumstance, sufficient of itself to exalt their doctrine above the world, is that Matthew, who was formerly fixed down to his money table, Peter and John, who were employed with their little boats, being all rude and illiterate, had never learned in any human school that which they delivered to others. Paul, moreover, who had not only been an avowed but a cruel and bloody foe, being changed into a new man, shows by the sudden and unhoped-for change that a heavenly power had compelled him to preach the doctrine which once he destroyed. Let those dogs deny that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, or if not, let them refuse credit to the history 
Still the very circumstances proclaim that the Holy Spirit must have been the teacher of those who formerly contemptible among the people all of a sudden began to discourse so magnificently of heavenly mysteries. Section 12 Add, moreover, that for the best of reasons the consent of the church is not without its weight. For it is not to be accounted of no consequence that from the first publication of Scripture so many ages have uniformly concurred in yielding obedience to it, and that notwithstanding of the many extraordinary attempts which Satan and the whole world have made to oppress and overthrow it, or completely efface it from the memory of men, it has flourished like the palm tree and continued invincible. Though in old times there was scarcely a sophist or orator of any note who did not exert his powers against it, their efforts proved unavailing. The powers of the earth armed themselves for its destruction, but all their attempts vanished into smoke. When thus powerfully assailed on every side, how could it have resisted if it had trusted only to human aid? Nay, its divine origin is more completely established by the fact that when all human wishes were against it, it advanced by its own energy. At that, it was not a single city or a single nation that concurred in receiving and embracing it. Its authority was recognized as far as wide as the world extends. Various nations who had nothing else in common entering for this purpose into a holy league Moreover, while we ought to attach the greatest weight to the agreement of minds so diversified, and in all other things so much at variance with each other, an agreement which a divine providence alone could have produced, it adds no small weight to the whole when we attend to the piety of those who thus agree, not of all of them indeed, but of those in whom as lights God was pleased that his church should shine. Section 13. Again, with what confidence does it become us to subscribe to a doctrine attested and confirmed by the blood of so many saints? They, when once they had embraced it, hesitated not boldly and intrepidly, and even with great alacrity, to meet death in its defense, being transmitted to us with such an earnest, who of us shall not receive it with firm and unshaken conviction? It is therefore no small proof of the authority of Scripture that it was sealed with the blood of so many witnesses, especially when it is considered that in bearing testimony to the faith they met death not with fanatical enthusiasm, as erring spirits are sometimes wont to do, but with a firm and constant yet sober godly zeal. There are other reasons, neither few nor feeble, by which the dignity and majesty of the scriptures may be not only proved to the pious, but also completely vindicated against the cavils of slanderers. These, however, cannot of themselves produce a firm faith in scripture until our Heavenly Father manifest His presence in it, and thereby secure implicit reverence for it. Then only, therefore, does scripture suffice to give a saving knowledge of God when its certainty is founded 
on the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Still, the human testimonies which go to confirm it will not be without effect if they are used in subordination to that chief and highest proof as secondary helps to our weakness. But it is foolish to attempt to prove to infidels that the Scripture is the Word of God. This it cannot be known to be except by faith. Justly, therefore, does Augustine remind us that every man who would have any understanding in such high matters must previously possess piety and mental peace. (laughs) 